right, so I am going to do a little self-disclosure. What we're talking about today was actually the focus of my dissertation. So I get a little excited about it. This is something that I spent a lot of time in. So um, I will try to keep it very succinct, but this is something that's really close to my heart. Um, and the passage of Luke 3 with John the Baptist and the Isaiah text, that was the, the focus and launching pad of my dissertation. So I just, I love these texts um, and I've been so looking forward to being able to have a great discussion with y'all about them tonight. Um, so tonight what we're talking about is this theme of equality that Luke has. And you'll see right here, um, the quote, a quote from the Magnificat that Mary sings in the very first chapter of Luke after she finds out that she is pregnant with the Son of God. Um, she sings, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. And at first, when we look at this, we may not actually immediately see it as equality. We think of it sometimes as an overturning or a reversal, if you will. But I wanna challenge us today, instead of looking at this as a reversal, to think about it as a form of leveling. And um, we're gonna get into that as we talk. So the first place that we're going to look is we're gonna actually look at the opposite. What is the world's way of people being in relationship to one another and people groups being in relationship to one another? And unfortunately, I would say, and I think Luke agrees with this, is that the world's way is a hierarchy where some people are higher than others, some people are more important than others, Unfortunately, some people are better or greater um, resemblances of the image of God than others. And we I know that Luke feels this way because he actually tells us in a couple different places. So at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, after he's been baptized and he is led by the spirit into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil. And Luke does something very interesting in his particular version of this story. He uses some different language than Matthew does, and Matthew is the only other gospel to have this story. Luke writes that when the devil led Jesus up onto a mountain and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. Now, what's really interesting is Matthew has this, and where he says all the kingdoms of the world, that word that he uses for world is cosmos, which you probably know what that means. That's the whole universe. It's the whole created world. Usually cosmos in, Greece, in Greek means the natural world, like the planet Earth, but that's not the word that Luke uses. Luke says, all the kingdoms of the oikumene. And the oikumene in Greek means the inhabited world, the world of human civilization and human systems. And it was also used as a nickname, if you will, for the Roman Empire. Because at the time, the whole inhabited world, as far as the people of the Mediterranean knew it, was ruled by Rome. And so the oikumene, the whole world was Rome. Now, what's interesting is this word oikumene is where we get the word ecumenical. It means everyone living together, everyone coming together. But what this especially means is that this is the world that people made, not the world that God made. God made the world like we see it in Eden and like we see it in the cosmos, the natural world and natural ways of human beings relating to each other. Think about in the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman, there was no hierarchy. They were equal. And it wasn't until sin happens where all of a sudden we start seeing a hierarchy where God tells them what you have done has, has started instituting putting one person above another and putting some things underneath other things. This hierarchy was not the intended creation of God, but this is the way that human systems work. And these uh, human systems are all the social ways that human beings relate to one another. It's economic, it can be religious and social, it can be 
um, national and military, all of these things, if you look at them in the world, those relationships are hierarchical. Some people are higher with people under them, and it's more like a, like a stair step. Jesus will actually talk about this in Luke's gospel. This is right after Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, where he tells his disciples to remember him by eating and drinking at the table together. And Luke writes in chapter 22 that it was as soon as they were finished with that, that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus said to him, them, no, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those in authority are called benefactors, but is not so with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Now, I want you to notice this little play that Jesus does. We might miss it because the word as is so small, but he says it twice. And what he's actually saying is the leader must become equal with the one who serves. The youngest and the oldest must become as each other. Jesus is introducing a form of equality that previously hasn't been recognized among his disciples. And he contrasts this to the way that the world, the oikomene functions. He says they have benefactors. And the ancient system of benefaction was that if you were above someone, you would do favors for them because they had less than you had. But doing those favors for them was actually a way of keeping them in your power. Think about um, the movie, The Godfather. By doing favors for someone, you actually enlist them as owing you, that they owe you gratitude or support or favors in the future. And so Jesus says that this system of benefaction, it looks like you're doing good deeds, but you're actually just serving yourself. And so rather than serving in order to keep your authority over someone, the leader has to become as or equal to the lowest person on the totem pole as the world would see it. So in this beginning and towards the end of Luke's gospel, we get a really good picture of how Luke understands the world's way, its system of operating. And when we go back to the beginning, we also see how Luke contrasts this with what he believes the Bible says is the Lord's way. Now, when we read this first part, I want you to hear the hierarchy, okay? This works and functions as a perfect stair step or ladder of hierarchy and of benefaction. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. I'm gonna stop right there. So remember, this is in chapter three, right as John the Baptist is coming on the scene, right before Jesus begins his ministry. And we see the entire empire laid out in front of us in just these two verses. The emperor Tiberius is over all, reigning from Rome. Underneath him is Pontius Pilate, the governor. Underneath him, is Herod, king of Galilee, and then the other tetrarchs, the four kings ruling together, all the different parts of Judea. And then underneath them are the priests in the temple. Now notice something very important. We have the whole Roman empire, but it's not just Rome. It's not just the foreign Romans. What we have here is also Herod is a partly Jewish king and he's ruling over the people there in Israel. We have the Jewish priests in the temple and they are functioning as part of this chain of command of Rome. Now remember what it was that Satan said to Jesus, all of this, all these systems, they have been given to me and I give them out to whomever I want. So I think what we're meant to see when we look at this 
is we're meant to see all of this hierarchy that some people have a lot of power and everyone else underneath them has less and less and less. And their importance becomes less and less and less. And now notice how Luke juxtaposes this with what comes next. It is in the midst of all these things happening in this whole Roman world that Luke tells us the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Notice how this quotation from Isaiah and mind you, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers to include this quotation from Isaiah. But notice what happens in contrast to this hierarchy of the Roman Empire. What do we have here? Every mountain will be made low and every valley will be lifted up. Now they don't trade places. The mountains don't become valleys and the valleys don't become mountains. They actually come to an equality. And how do we know that? Because it says that then all flesh shall see. Everybody gets a place that they can see clearly God's salvation coming towards them. It's made a level playing field. And that's the beauty of the way Luke introduces the whole mission of John the Baptist and then of Jesus is that he introduces all the ways that equality will play out in this oikomene, in this world of human beings living together. Where are we going to see this salvation for all people happening equally? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the very first way, right out of the gate, the first type of equality that gets preached and from John the Baptist himself in the very next verses is economic equality. John says to the crowds that come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You know, I ought to, I ought to say that more often when I preach. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't even begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is therefore cut down and thrown into the fire. Folks, that is chilling, okay? Because he's talking to religious people, talking to people who claim religious tradition and who claim that as their identity. And he says, if you want to claim it as your identity, you have to claim it as your actions. And so these people, they get serious and they say, okay, what should we do then? And I want you to notice how every single action that he dictates they do is all economic justice. He said, anybody who has two coats needs to share with someone who doesn't have any. And the same if you have food. Tax collectors came out to be baptized and they said, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than the amount that's prescribed for you to do so. And then soldiers who were there said, how about us? And he says, don't extort money from anyone. Be satisfied with your wages. Be grateful for what you have. Notice how what you do with your money and possessions is how they are called to demonstrate whether or not they are people who are going to receive God's salvation. And this is, like I said, right here at the beginning, Luke chapter three. Luke doesn't mince any words. And this section where all of these people are asking John, what should we do? And he's telling them, this is also something that is unique to Luke. None of the other gospel writers include this. So we know that this is exceptionally important to Luke and to the way that he constructs his gospel. Another place where we see this is Luke has this sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter six, and it's actually much of the same material that we find in Matthew chapter five and six, where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. 
However, Luke also does something very different. It says, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. Jesus is not on a mountain when he preaches this sermon. He is on a level place. And it says, so all the people could come to him. So uh, whereas Matthew is constructing the sermon so that it resembles Moses on the mountain transmitting the law from God to the people, Luke has something else in mind. He is bringing the mountain down so that all people have access to Jesus. And of course, it says that he's curing them and healing them and touching them. And then he begins to teach. So this, this equal access to Jesus is a huge part of how Luke understands the gospel. And it's here that he starts to preach some of the same things that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're very different. And I want you to notice how he begins. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, what's very interesting is Matthew spiritualizes this and says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And Matthew doesn't even say you. Matthew says they. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus points at his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. Not poor in spirit not metaphorically poor, legitimately poor. This is the people that this gospel is targeting. This is the people and the issue that this gospel is taking so serious that there are people that are up here and people that are down here. And it's God's will that all people see salvation. And in order for that to happen, some have to be brought down a little and some have to be given a boost. And then we'll know that we're all seeing God's salvation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I want you to notice how there's an emphasis on the now. Luke has this notion that's really prevalent in the ancient world that there was this thing called, and I'm not talking about the game show, but the wheel of fortune. <laughs> and it literally was a spinning wheel that if you had a certain amount of wealth or joy or anything, it's only a matter of time before the wheel will spin and you will actually come into a time of sorrow. And really, although I don't believe there's anyone actually spinning a wheel, it's not a bad way to look at life. Life on earth as we know it is made up of good and bad things. It is a balance. It does happen that good things happen and bad things happen. And that's the way the world works. But Luke also has this notion of balance in mind that it is not right even in this wheel of fortune if some people have nothing and some people have everything. And I'm going to show you a parable that Jesus teaches, again, only in Luke's gospel that demonstrates this. There's a rich man, right? And he wears all this sumptuous uh, regalia and he feasts on delicious foods every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger just with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, Remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, evil things. But now, notice that word, now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that's been fixed so that even anyone who wanted to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. And then he said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, 
they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. Oh, that is just absolutely chilling. <laughs> um, but notice how he says, you had good things in your life and Lazarus had only bad things happen. And yet Lazarus, under, uh, not, um, not Lazarus, but the rich man understands that he screwed up, that he could have balanced this. He could have given some good things to Lazarus. In fact, he might've been able to take on some of Lazarus's grief, some of Lazarus's sickness as his own responsibility. And then not only would both of their lives have been balanced, but their afterlives. So it's through this parable that we understand that Luke sees this economic disparity between the very rich and the very poor as something that does not have to exist in the way that we see it so sharply defined. That people who have more actually have the ability to give and so to bring those scales back into balance. And not only is that good news for the poor that are lying outside their gates, it's good news for the rich who are now contributing to a system of peace, a system of balance, and a system that they don't realize will actually be of benefit to themselves. So it's a very interesting parable uh, that Luke gives us there that demonstrates that. And he gives us an example of what this looks like when it's actually done right and enacted in this life. As Jesus is nearing the end of his travels towards Jerusalem, so in the very next chapter, it's going to begin the passion that will happen in Jerusalem. It's his last stop before he gets to Jerusalem and he's approaching Jericho. Now I want you to notice, I want you to keep in mind the vision that Luke's, um, John the Baptist has of the mountains being lowered and the valleys being lifted up. And this being the sort of visual um, picture of what it looks like when we find this equality and all people receive salvation. So Jesus approaches Jericho and there's a man sitting by the side of the road and he's begging. And he screams out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps yelling out until Jesus says, pick him up and bring him here. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Lord, let me see again. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they praised God. So I want you to think about the mountains coming low and the valleys coming up and everyone seeing salvation. This man was literally sitting next to the road, lower than everyone else, and he's been brought up. And what does he get to do? He sees salvation. He sees Jesus. The very next verse is the story about a very small tax collector named Zacchaeus, and he also cannot see Jesus. He was trying, but he's so short that he can't see over anyone. So he climbs a tree. And as Jesus comes past the tree, he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, get down from there. Come down because I want to stay at your house today. So notice what happens for these two men to be with Jesus. One is poor and blind and begging. And Jesus lifts him up. And he is on an equal place with Jesus. And then that man comes along with Jesus and they meet Zacchaeus and Jesus beckons him down from the tree and says, come stand down here with me, with this formerly blind beggar. And so what happens? Zacchaeus hurries down. And then when everybody is upset that Jesus is going to be with this tax collector, he says, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back four times as much. So he's also part of this economic balance. And then Jesus says, today salvation came to your house. And you are a son of Abraham. Remember when John the Baptist said, if you want to be children of Abraham, what do you have to do? Economic justice. That's what Zacchaeus. That 
Zacchaeus commits to doing, and Jesus says, look, you have been saved. Both these men, the beggar and the tax collector, both have a view of God's salvation. Both can see. Why? Because one came up and one came down. And they get to stand on an equal place where they both have access to Jesus. I think this, these two stories put together back to back is Luke showing us what this looks like in the world. When people do it, unlike the rich man and Lazarus, before it's too late, before they miss out on the opportunity to actually be enacting this type of society where all people get to see salvation. The next type of equality that we can see is really important to Luke is a type of gender equality. Anytime, especially in those first several chapters, anytime that you see a man in a position doing something, there is likewise a woman who is doing something equally. So we get um, angelic epiphanies to both Mary and Zachariah. Now, don't you know it, Mary is the one who faithfully receives it, whereas Zachariah gets temporarily punished. And then both of them offer these praises to God in song. We have the Benedictus, um, from Zechariah, and we have the Magnificat from Mary. When Jesus is presented in the temple as a baby, there are two prophets that reside there in the temple, and one is Simeon and one is Anna, and they are both described as prophets of the Lord residing in the temple, both proclaiming who this child is um, and offering constant prayer and service to the Lord. And you can often also see the same tendency in the way that Luke will tell stories about Jesus's healing. So if you see a man being healed, such as the man with dropsy, the very next story Luke places in his order is a story of a crippled woman being healed. So that we see that this sort of return to Genesis, like we know Luke is very excited about Genesis. Um, he wants to constantly show this balance of things becoming equal. This is something else that Luke, only Luke does. Luke includes female disciples of Jesus actually traveling with Jesus. And as we see here, they fund his ministry. It says that he and his disciples, they're traveling all over, preaching the good news. The 12 were with them. But it said also some women who had themselves been cured, had been healed from evil spirits and from diseases. We have Mary Magdalene. Joanna, the wife of one of the king's stewards, Susanna's, and it said many others who provided for them out of their resources. So these women were actually the patrons of Jesus and his, the rest of his disciples, and they traveled around with them as part of Jesus's own band of disciples. This is something only Luke gives us, that we get this notion of female disciples. And then we also have women in this gospel specifically referred to as prophets, Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, and then later, I'm gonna show you a really fun passage. Uh, there's another place where I really do think that it may be that Jesus is referring to another group of female prophets. It actually comes in the resurrection story. So it's only in Luke's gospel that the women go to the tomb and they see the angels, and they remember that Jesus had said he would rise again. But now notice what happens in these final verses. Now the other women went with them and told this to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Now that seems a slap in the face. If you are a woman who has traveled around with this company of men and you have funded their ministry, you probably bailed them out of jail a time or two, and you're still the only disciple faithful enough to show up at the tomb. And yet, the men don't believe the women. This only happens in Luke's story, and it's very strange, especially knowing that they've spent lots of time together. These women are trustworthy. They have been part of this group. Like I said, they've funded this group. You would think of all people, they would listen to these women. Well, as luck would have it, Luke also has another story that only he writes, which is the road to Emmaus. 
And Jesus is walking with two of his disciples and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And they're telling Jesus this sob story about how the one that they hoped was the Messiah was actually killed. And then they say this to Jesus. Some of the women in our group astounded us. They went to the tomb this morning and didn't find his body. They came back and they told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't actually see Jesus. I want you to hear this. This is Jesus's reply. As soon as these two disciples finished telling Jesus this story, he says, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Now, I do think in some sense, Jesus is referring to the prophets of Israel of old, because Luke keeps this refrain that all the prophets have sort of spoken of all the things that Jesus would do and who Jesus would be and the sort of nature of the kingdom of God. I think that's true. But I also find it very interesting that this is his immediate response as soon as these men are done critiquing and disbelieving the women. And we know throughout Luke's gospel that women are very often referred to as prophets. How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. God had sent, these angels had sent these women prophetically to tell the male apostles the good news, and they refused to believe. I think in some sense, this is Luke balancing these scales, that Jesus is the one who says, you should have listened to them. Maybe next time they'll pay closer attention and they'll check themselves. The final thing that we see is Luke's emphasis. And this is really the thing that Luke launches into Acts. This is really the whole, um, the whole ethos of the book of Acts is the ethnic equality and how all peoples Whereas we see lots of individuals in Luke's gospel coming to these forms of balance. What we're going to see in Acts is an emphasis on equality between whole people groups. But even here in Luke's gospel, we can see the seeds of this already coming up. Um, the angel, when, they, when he announces the birth of Jesus as happening right then in Bethlehem, he says that this news is for all people. One of the things that Jesus does in Luke's gospel is he goes across the Sea of Galilee to the Gentile side, and he frees a man there who is filled with demons, not ironically named legion, which also conjures images of the Roman Empire. A legion was this, this huge company of soldiers, and it would just militarily overwhelm and dominate whatever area they went into. This man is the very image of this hierarchical uh, oikumene type poverty caused by one set of people being higher than another. And not only does Jesus free him, but when this man wants to follow Jesus and be his servant, Jesus tells him to go back to his own home, to tell his own story, to take up space in his own life. This is the absolute opposite of Jesus wanting someone to be beneath him, but rather granted him this equality. And also only in Luke's gospel, we get the story of these 10 lepers that are healed by Jesus. And the only one that turns back to thank Jesus and to praise God is a Samaritan, someone who is ethnically on the outside of the Jewish community. All of these things really add up when we see how punctuated Luke's story is with these um, instances and narratives of people who are different and not from the same ethnic group being included in the people who get to call Jesus Savior. Once a place where we really see a lot of these um, elements coming together is right at that beginning. And I know we talked about it last time when Simeon is in the temple and Jesus is just a baby. And his parents have brought him in in order to dedicate him to the Lord. Um, it says that Simeon takes this baby in his arms and he refers to Jesus as the salvation of God, which God has prepared in the presence of all people. So we hear this ethnic equality. 
And then he explains that as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. We hear this wonderful emphasis on this is for both kinds of people, Jews and people who are not Jews. But notice how he develops this. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And indeed, a sword will, will pierce your own heart as well. So notice how right here in the beginning, this notion of all people becoming equal, all people coming into balance, even that we know that there's going to be pushback in Luke's gospel, that these notions of equality aren't always good news for everyone in the same way. That there will, all, as much as we want to celebrate this in the story, some people are fine with some kinds of equality, like poor people want to be equal with the wealthy, but some people don't want their ethnic group to be equal with another's. And we see that play out in Jesus's very first ministry experience in his own hometown. It says when he comes to Nazareth, he, as in good Luke fashion, he has to read from the prophet Isaiah. And again, only in Luke's gospel, does Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah in his first sermon at Nazareth. And he preaches, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when Jesus stops right there, everyone, it says, spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words coming from his mouth because he said, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is going to kick that off. These were words that were spoken, and now they're being enacted. And that's good news. When you're a poor, small backwater town on the periphery of the Roman Empire, hearing that God is proclaiming good news to the poor, that sounds great. Equality sounds wonderful. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, doubtless, you'll say, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometowns the things that we've heard you do in Capernaum. And he said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But guess what? There were a lot of widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of those except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. That means she's a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian, also a Gentile. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. Now, folks, equality sounds great until it applies to someone that you don't want to share that equality with. And what I want you to notice, especially here, is notice how they lead him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. I think that Luke's gospel offers us this chance to examine on what principles, on what hierarchies, on what elevating of some people and lowering of other people has our whole society been built on? Who are we uncomfortable with being equal to us or sharing and allowing for them to have equality with us? And the thing is, it's important for us to come to those kinds of conclusions because as we see in this particular story, we might be in danger of running Jesus off by refusing to demonstrate and include others in that equality.
Hey there, family. Welcome to your week with St. Luke, specifically our office hours portion. I'm here with your four pastors and Dr. E.B. Arnold, and we are looking at chapters four and five of the Gospel of Luke. And so take it away, Evie. All right. So this week uh, we were talking about how Luke sees the story of Jesus and this early Christian community as being sort of a reinstatement or a return to God's good creation in the Garden of Eden, that he's bringing all these things that were created in shalom, created in God's perfect balance, um, that worldly systems of power have altered so that they are hierarchical, so that there are some that are above others and some that are below. So these dichotomies of rich and poor, or Jew and Gentile, or male and female, all these things in the beginning Luke sees as being in balance, and he, in his story, likes to return things uh, to the balance. And I, I love this um, uh, New Testament scholar who just passed away last year, uh, Charles Talbert. One of his theories is that he looked at the what happened in Eden as the human being was in relationship with four things, with the earth, the land, with God, with others, and with the self. Mm -hmm. And that what happened uh, in the Genesis story is that all of those relationships were in some sense corrupted mm -hmm. or went askew, and that's where we started seeing the imbalances come in. Um, and that with Jesus, what we see in Luke's story is that all of these relationships come back into their proper focus, back into their proper relationship. And the thing that I started thinking about was, does the church or how could the church also work to bring balance to those relationships? Mm. Does the church care about all of those relationships? I would say <laughs> when, when you say the church, that's where this gets hard to answer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I have been told, you know, for so long, you know, in the college I went to and um, other places that we do still live in a subordination because of the fall mm -hmm. um, and because of Eden and they, and so many churches and people I know, pastors I've, I've heard um, that women are still subordinate and we are still submissive and that we, and that we do rule over the world. And so the world should be the created order is the way it is because we're in charge. And so I haven't, not in the Methodist church, mind you. Now in the Methodist church, I've heard other stories, <laughs> more of what you were saying, but um, it, it is interesting because I, I, what I find is the struggle of when we preach and teach what you just talked about, that Jesus came and, and the whole point is to return to this understanding of what was originally the, the vision of God at creation, um, we're, we're, uh, we are seen as not being biblical. Mm -hmm. and, that, and so it's interesting because, yeah. yes, the church can do it if the church is doing it according to Jesus' redemptive, redemptive work. Right. Um, but we are up and against other churches that do not see it as such. Like neighbors. Mm -hmm who have signs that say solid biblical teaching. And that's a, that's a dog whistle to, we don't let women preach, mm -hmm. right? I mean. And so many other things. Oh, it's so <laughs> many other things. Right, 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 right. Why stop right. there? Right. Right. Yeah. That creation care is right. not. Taking care of the earth. You yeah. know, that is not a biblical thing. And right. um, stewardship of, of, yeah. So it's so, it's so interesting because I think we're kind of at a crossroads in our culture right now. Um, and a division about that kind of yeah. thing. That's why I also, I mean, I was asked a few weeks ago on our Ask the Pastors that, you know, what's your favorite scripture? Genesis 1 is one of my favorite scriptures because it it spells out what the kingdom looks like. And I always like to say Genesis 1 came before Genesis 2 and 3, um, or primarily Genesis 3, right? Mm -hmm. um, that came first to spell out sort of, you know, the starting point, what we're really, you know, working working towards. And um, in, in there, you've got some pretty broad equality and mm -hmm. equity. And mm -hmm. um, and so if we take that as sort of our roadmap, then absolutely it's the church's calling to, to do that work. Um, and, and with, you know, different, different results, depending on what you put into it. But. And the ministry, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
like we're talking about here. Like, like it also calls for that, for what John preaches and and uh, out of Isaiah 40, and to what Jesus preaches announces um, out of out of Isaiah um, 61. Right, it's, mm-hmm. it does call for that, and so I think you know we're it's we need to continue to move closer to the gospel mm-hmm. as we 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 need to get like like the last week to the core of what this is really all about, what Jesus is proclaiming. But, we need to literally read the Bible yeah, read. <laughs> instead of read literally. <laughs> but, but, and, <laughs> that doesn't mean we pretend we are already there. Mm-hmm. And that's but the sure. other thing yeah. that I see is mm-hmm. going, let's not talk about inequality because if you talk about it, it makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Let's not talk about where we've gone wrong because talking about it highlights it. Let's just pretend like it's all good. Um, and that isn't what we see in Jesus. You see, you know, in, in, in this part of Luke, Jesus says, I have come to preach good news to the poor Mm -hmm. because the poor are the ones who were not being allowed to be part of that equitable creation. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because the poor are the only ones the gospel is for, Mm -hmm. but because the poor were the ones that were, were being pushed out of the, the equity of, of what creation is, Mm -hmm. is designed for. Mm -hmm. So, so I think that's the other thing is, is Jesus talks about it Mm -hmm. and we are called to also talk about Mm -hmm where there is inequity and where there is imbalance. Um, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't, that actually helps that is if we don't talk about it, we aren't going to realize it. So. Well, and Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. And the good news is that there is supposed to be this vision where we all have enough, which means the good news to the wealthy people is that you get to be a part of helping it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you, you get to be a part of helping the kingdom of God become level and equal and balanced. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's good news. And the so it's not, a, it's not a win-lose. Right. It's, right. A, it's right. a win-win. Well, and to liberate the oppressed, there's a lot. That it, uh, that we all need to be liberated from, that we're all oppressed from. I mean, mm-hmm. so that 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 speaks to the wealthy also. Like, there's that too. Um, there's a place for everybody. I, I I love bringing up that notion of the zero sum game. That for for yeah. for me to win, it means someone has to lose. Right. Because that is not no the, the that's not what we have here in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, Jeremy was saying earlier. It's funny how people when they hear good news to the poor, they think that that must be bad news to the rich. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? Why would it not benefit you to have your neighbors be healthy, to have your neighbors be fed and cared for? Um, it was interesting when I, I started at, at my PhD at Emory, we were having a colloquy meeting of all of like the first and second year students. And one of the facilitators of the discussion, he said, you know, do you guys struggle with competition with each other? Do you ever find that um, it, that someone else doing better, you know, or getting published or things like that, do you find that to be a struggle? And I just said, no, because they're making all of us look better. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, if right. if if the, the place where I'm working is publishing good things and people are having good ideas, mm-hmm. that only makes my degree from that place that much more valuable. So what if we saw our communities and the people in our world that the better they do, the better we're all doing. So good news for everyone is really good news for Mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. right. That sounds a lot like my own like Candler experience from a, a MDiv perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody when we first uh, came in, our first year said it's a lot less competitive than I thought, and I just kind of thought, where do you where do you have the time for the energy <laughs> to be competitive? Because yeah. we were all dying. Right. You know what I mean? We were from the from like we were all dying, so we just all tried to help each other. Mm-hmm. But but going back to that idea of just literally reading the Bible, it's so interesting. Uh, and implementing what you were saying, Melissa, like a lot of the gross theology we have around those broken relationships comes from our interaction with Genesis. It's yeah. just, if we if we just had better conversations around Genesis, right? Uh, if we focus so much on the relationship between self and God, or or self and other, and then self together and then creation kind of come afterward in our thinking about how we do Christianity, but like, or or how we do faith. But like, if we just had, if we just spent a little more time with Genesis and and, and read and and thought about how we can engage it differently, Mm -hmm. those relationships will look a lot different. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, it always, it always makes me kind of chuckle because when you look at the story in Genesis, all of those relationships becoming hierarchical and subordinate 
are the curses. Right. And then right. you yes. get the same people Sunday morning going, hallelujah, Jesus took the curse of sin. And I'm like, well, then, then why do you want us to live in it? Yeah. Like, right. let it go. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, yeah, that's always very, uh, very not amusing, but. But it is crazy because now it's a curse you choose. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. you, it's a curse yeah. you choose to. Yeah. yeah that's well, it's it. a curse I choose not for myself, but a curse I choose to put on you. Exactly. Right. So that exactly. I can, st- so you can stay subordinate right. to me. Yeah. And that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And Which that's is right. the curse. Oh, that's a, and, and that's oppression. That's right. oppression, right. right? It's not liberation. So, well, yeah, if, if your entire identity is built around getting to oppress others, then, yes, it's probably bad news for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be good news if you can realize that's not what you were created for. Yes. But but it might feel like bad news for a second. <laughs> exactly. And, so. like I said, there's no reason... There's nothing in the text that says that for this one to flourish, this one has to die. In fact, when God gives the blessings to creation, it's understood that if everybody gets blessed, then you are blessed until you are revoking someone else's blessing. Because that's something the creator did. The creator blessed this thing and told it to be fruitful and multiply. Mm. As long as you are not interfering with that, you are blessed to be fruitful and multiply. You know, so there's no, there is no notion of you must suffer. It's that you may not cause suffering to another. And so you're right. That that's where we have to really ask: Is my identity that I want to flourish, or that I want to flourish and cause someone to suffer? That's really the question. Well, and the curses were the curses of scarcity, mm-hmm. and whether it was scarcity of health and wholeness or yeah. or the ground not whatever, producing. right? Yeah. And and when Jesus died and was resurrected, it was for all of the earth. It wasn't for this, it was for the sins of all the world, all of the earth, everything was, which means it's the reversal of scarcity into abundance. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think sometimes not only do we sometimes still live in to curses, we don't, and, and, it, and therefore if we live into forgiveness, it's forgiveness and, and for me and my eternal salvation, but we stop short of living into abundance again. And we just live into this cultural, worldly notion that that there is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so I have to protect mine. And it's something that I think is so ingrained in us that we don't even recognize that some of our greatest worries, you know, consider the lilies of the field is about our greatest worries because there's not enough for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, a, it's the sin of scarcity. Yeah. And to operate out of fear and anxiety is not liberative. There's no liberty there. It's it's oppressive, and and it's just not who we were and how we were created to be and operate. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fear that you know, even not in necessarily an economic sense, no. but that I myself, my identity will yes. diminish if someone else's is allowed to be fully expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Based on that, I think it's interesting that part of the the restoration of this balance is allowing there to be opposites that are present mm-hmm. and not erase those differences. Um, but And I think that the church is actually uniquely situated to be that middle ground that can facilitate and actually house all of those opposites. Um, I think it's actually the church's native habitat. When we look at Luke's sequel... The church becomes the place where not just men and women, but Jews and Gentiles gather to worship and actually eat food, which was strangely enough the more uh, not done thing. Um, Do you think that the church is challenged in being this middle ground, this gathering place where we can actually hold and house um, lots of different people all at the same time? The church is made of people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, church, the church is made of people, and people struggle with that. Mm-hmm. It's in order to, in order for us to all be able to sit in the same room and hold each other with the same respect, independent of the way that we're made up, is something that everybody struggles with in their, in their own, and it requires such individual and personal deep work. So yeah, I think the church struggles with that, but uh, it, it, we have our work caught up. Caught, uh, uh, we have our work cut out for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it says we try to make those changes, but it, it, it's just so 
fuzzy and hard because it's such an individual task, but also such a communal task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think where where it works and where you see that being the healthiest version of the church is when we all actually understand the bigger picture that that you have not the opposites of 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 complete understanding of what the gospel is about but that we all agree that the the bigger goal is to create create the kingdom on earth to to recreate Mm -hmm. that genesis sort of starting point um and maybe we disagree in how we go about that and I think that is that is the the you know the 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 differences and the the opposites and the different ideas of of how we get to that point, and when those things struggle, that's healthy discernment. It's when we start dis, we start struggling over how we go about things, and as we do it, we discover we didn't have the same goal in the first place. That's where it gets really. Hmm. That's where it gets really harmful is, oh, wait, you're, you're wanting to do things a certain way. I want to do this this way. And when, again, when, it's, when, when we are working towards the same goal, that's healthy. Mm-hmm. When in that process you discover you weren't working towards the same goal in the first place, that's where, that's where it gets really, really painful. Which goes back to the first week. Yeah. Yes. It goes like, like it, if you don't. It's not just that we sang that song and we love that song. It was why we sang the song yes. and what the song was teaching us. Yes. <laughs> and if yeah. we don't understand and agree on what the song was teaching us and why we were singing it, then we're going to argue about the music. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we're going to argue about the drums and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, if we can't understand that it's good news for the poor, and if it's not good news for the poor, it's not the gospel, and issues of justice, and we can't agree on those things, and we don't see those as central of our unity, then no, we're not going to see how we do culture and community together, which makes me realize that community and discipleship have to go together as core values that we talk about, because acceptance and hospitality builds a community, but I don't have to stay in that community unless I'm a disciple. Because if the community doesn't speak the way I speak, they don't vote the way I vote, they don't like what I I can leave. But if I'm a disciple in that community, then I stay and I get to the why and the what. Yeah, and, and why we have to do discipleship because it gets to the core of the thing. And so right. that's why these things happen around it. Oh, and the, the context what might change. Yeah. But if we're teaching the core of why that is, then that will flourish. And then what that looks like, it'll change. Right. How we use each space, mm-hmm. how we do ministry, how we do worship, as long as we're staying. But we got to teach. We got to keep reminding ourselves of that core. Well, and discipleship Disciple. makes me stay in and love you. Yeah. Yeah. And do that work. Yep. When I when the world tells me I should just go because I don't I didn't like get what you. I wanted <laughs> right. out of it. Right. What right. I paid mm-hmm. for or whatever. And, those, and, no, sorry, oh, go ahead. I was just saying those 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 in between spaces are hard though. Even when we do mm-hmm. have the same goal, right? Mm-hmm. It goes back to what you were saying earlier. Even though we have the same goal and we're working towards the same thing, mm-hmm. let's not pretend that we're there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's not pretend that yeah. we're there. Um, but at the same time, um, like there has to be grace for being aspirational in where you're growing. Yeah. Right? Because none of us have, uh, for, mm-hmm. for the ways that we hope to project ourselves as progressive and having learned what it means to love other human beings and their differences, we haven't always been there and it's been a journey. Yeah. And so it's, it's just the balance of the accountability of making the change, but at the same time, grace for yourself and others as you're growing and changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the church is so uniquely situated because like you said, this is the one place where you you are forming your identity around something you absolutely do not have to do. You right. don't have to participate in this community. Um, but by choosing that and eating with people that you would not otherwise eat with, mm-hmm. fellowshipping, um, mourning, worshiping, those kind of, I mean, and we all know that the times that we have been changed and had our minds changed and our hearts changed, it was in a relationship where we were able to feel or see or experience something we would not have otherwise experienced. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, I mean, it's its really something we don't think about, but are we one of the only places where we really believe people can change, that people can actually be become something 
beautiful and godly and completely other than what the world tells them that they must be. I just think that that's, um, I think sometimes we, we forget there aren't that many places in the world that truly believe that's even possible. Because there's no other place where you are literally, if you're a member, you are mandated. You are not asked to. You are not requested to. You are mandated by the CEO to love. (laughs) And love in a way that will produce transformation in the world. I mean, there's no, it's period. If you do what I command, Mm -hmm. you will love each other. And that's, you know, that there's no other place that dictates that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do that. Yes, let's go and love. Let's be that community. (laughs) Let's look for places this week where we might see possibility for tension. And how are you going to make the choice to love this week? We'll see you next week.